Just after the horrors of the 9-11 attacks, an elite group of CIA operatives called Team Alpha was dropped into Afghanistan. And in recent weeks, the CIA had been warning about a potentially rapid takeover by the Taliban and total collapse of the Afghan military and government. But we don't know if that message ever got to the White House. In December 2009, seven CIA operatives were killed at a secret base in Afghanistan by a Jordanian double agent. With that suicide bombing that killed eight Americans at a CIA base in eastern Afghanistan. This morning, the Taliban are claiming responsibility. This was the worst single loss of life for the CIA since 1983 when a truck bomber blew up the American embassy in Beirut. As far as we know, eight employees of the CIA had been killed in Afghanistan prior to yesterday's bombing. On October 7, 2001, just shy of a month after Al-Qaeda murdered 2,996 innocent Americans, and in doing so, catapulted the world into a new era of ideological conflict. President George W. Bush addressed the nation from the Treaty Room of the White House. Good afternoon. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. He announced that supported by her strongest Western allies, including Great Britain, Canada and Australia, America's campaign to avenge the despicable unprovoked attacks of 9-11 was underway. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime. But what the public didn't know at that moment in time was that America's retaliation had already begun. Just 15 days after the attacks on the US homeland on September 26th, the first team of Americans dispatched to settle the score with Al-Qaeda and the Taliban landed in Afghanistan. In the days that followed, 100 CIA officers flew on Russian-made MI-17 helicopters that weren't uncommon in Afghanistan after the Russian invasion and were less likely to arouse suspicion and landed in the tribal wilds of the country's north. Their mission was to forge an allegiance with several tribal warlords who controlled the area and who might be persuaded to fight on the side of the Americans. The secret operation was codenamed Jawbreaker and the CIA officers didn't travel alone. With them, they brought about 300 US Special Forces operators in full battle rattle and crate loads of black duffel bags filled with cash. They then set about the business of soliciting their new partners by sitting down with tribal commanders and warlords and offering them a non-negotiable one-way bargain that these fighters of war-torn Afghanistan had almost certainly encountered before. Silver or lead? The search is underway for those who are behind these evil acts. I've directed the full resources of our intelligence and law enforcement communities to find those responsible and to bring them to justice. We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbored them. No one knew it at the time, but a secret team of CIA officers was already on the ground, paving the way for the fall of the Taliban. Every nation 
in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. In the months after they invaded Afghanistan, coalition forces routed the Taliban and what remained of Al-Qaeda as the intelligence services pursued Osama bin Laden to Tora Bora, where he ultimately escaped and disappeared into Pakistan. And as the decisive opening acts of the conflict drew to a close, the CIA's role in the war would remain equally central to its leadership of the invasion. As a new war in Iraq directed both American resources and attention away from Afghanistan, the Taliban forces organised an insurgency which would form the long grinding middle chapters of the 20 years of war. The CIA's Directorate of Operations divides itself into teams called mission centres. And throughout the war, it deployed officers into Afghanistan via two of its shadowiest groups, the Counterterrorism Mission Centre and the Special Activities Centre. Between them, their job was to identify, locate, and kill or capture high-value enemies of the United States and coalition forces. Throughout that period, our guest on today's show was deployed into Afghanistan as part of one of those teams. Her name is Gita Bakshi, a 14-year veteran of the agency's clandestine Directorate of operations who today finds herself on something of a different track. As the Afghanistan withdrawal unfolded, Gita watched on from America, terrified for what might become of the brave Afghan men and women who partnered with the CIA during the war. And so she decided to do something about it. So moved by the plight of the people of Afghanistan. Joining me now, Gita Bakshi. Gita, good morning to you. You are such an impressive person. Joined the CIA in the aftermath of 9-11, spent years hunting down Al-Qaeda terrorists. And you felt so moved. You, you had a calling when Afghanistan collapsed to the Taliban in August. Tell us what you're doing now. Gita's the founder of an American not-for-profit called FAMIL, the Afghan word for family, which is working to support our Afghan partners as they attempt to resettle in America after the collapse. We sat down in Washington DC last week and kicked off our conversation with Gita giving an outline of her career at the CIA. Good afternoon, Gita. Lovely to meet you in person. Wonderful to meet you too, Jack. We're sitting here in uh, sunny Washington, D.C. It's a lot warmer than New York, so it was a it was a pleasant experience traveling down today. Well, that's great. So usually in this part of the start of the interview, I give a little bit of background about the interview subject's career and, and the authority on the subject we're going to discuss. But as it turns out, it's not that easy to do background research on alumni of the CIA. <laughs> it's a little bit more difficult than some other former employers. And so I thought it might make sense if you'd like to outline for us your career in broad strokes terms, uh, and then we'll dig into some detail afterwards. All right. Well, Jack, as, uh, as you know, I'm a former alumni, as you call it, of the CIA, a place where I spent about 14 years and focused almost exclusively on the counterterrorism mission. I can say, hands down, best experience of my life working at the agency and something that I often miss, although I am looking forward to other things in life and, and pursuing other dreams and goals. Yeah, I bet. Why don't we 
rewind a little bit and would you mind giving us a little bit of background on your upbringing, where you're from and how you found your way to work for for the CIA? Absolutely. So born and raised in Northern Virginia. Northern Virginia is home for me. It's where I studied and went to college. And actually, I grew up not too far away from Langley and kind of had my eyes set on CIA for from a very young age, of, of course, without fully realizing what that meant. I think most kids in the world <laughs> have their eyes set on the CIA from a very young age. Right. <laughs> not many actually do it. Sure. And like I said, not fully understanding what that meant. But in college, I was actually studying um, to go to law school. I wanted to be a criminal prosecutor. And I was in my first introduction to terrorism course on a morning in September, which later became marked in history as 9-11. 2001? 2001, yep. I was in Introduction to Terrorism class when we saw on the, you know, on the TV screen what was happening in, in New York City with the towers collapsing. And mm. Do you remember how it made you feel watching that footage? Did you feel anger? Did you feel disbelief? It started with disbelief. Uh, I remember for days feeling just heartbroken for the thousands of innocent lives that had been lost um, and for the families just that had been destroyed by this. But that disbelief and that pain also turned into, I, I felt infuriated that Al-Qaeda had planned and executed such a deadly attack on the U.S. homeland. And it really, you know, it really motivated me to want to do something about it. That experience, 9-11, really prompted my interest in wanting to get involved in serving my country in a, in a more meaningful way and really prompted my desire to bring the perpetrators of that attack to justice. Yeah. I mean, that's just an extraordinary story that that occurred in your first class of a subject about terrorism. After that, did you seek the CIA out or did they find you? Oh, no, I went on CIA.gov. <laughs> and it wasn't until a few years after that, because I was probably a second year college student at that point. So I still went through finishing college, but along the way started studying more about Al-Qaeda and about Osama bin Laden and understanding more about this group. And then eventually, I eventually I went on CIA.gov to apply. <laughs> yeah, right. And I know that you are limited in insofar as what you're able to talk about in terms of that sort of recruitment and training process. And so we're going to skip ahead pretty quickly to your career at the CIA. But you know, is there anything that you're able to share about that period where you were where you were being trained by the agency? You know, what what sort of skills they taught you, things like that. I tell you, I mean, when I look back at the early years of my career, the one thing that always stands out is the butterflies I would get from the first day I arrived at Langley, mm. really until the last day, um, there was just this feeling of like being gifted the ability to be part of such an extraordinary mission and the the grave sense of responsibility that came with that. But early in my career, I mean, it was exciting to meet so many people from different walks of life and to really see this this journey go from like being a trainee to a junior officer and then eventually, you know, following your interest and developing expertise in, in a certain field, which is what I decided to do. And you mentioned the butterflies arriving at Langley. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? I've heard so many interesting tidbits about the CIA and Langley over the years. I remember uh, one other person who is a former agency employee told me that there's a Starbucks in the lobby and it's the only one in the whole world where they don't <laughs> write your name on the cup and call it out when your order's ready. You know, 
first of all, there is a Starbucks and it, it's pretty busy all the time. Um, and I will say I'm guilty of also being in that line occasionally. Um, but, you know, I don't know if I if I yeah, you're, I guess you're right. I don't remember. Apparently, it's the only Starbucks in the world where they call out the name of the drink, not the name of the customer. <laughs> you know, you're right, Jack. <laughs> Yes, now that you say it, I mean, I remember ordering a drink and your drink would get called. So, yeah, you're right. Now that you stop and think about it. You know, it's interesting when you're, you know, when you're part of the agency, especially when you're you're um, working in, you know, the DO or the director of operations. Um, so much of what you do is is surrounded by secrecy um, from, you know what you do, what you're, you know, on a day-to-day basis. There's so much of it that that's just surrounded by secrecy. I mean, you go to work, your family, your loved ones know you're at work, and then that's it. You come home, you don't talk about anything. And that secrecy carries on. It's, it's a responsibility that we have even after leaving the agency. But the one thing that I think is important is to draw on the the lessons learned and the experiences that you've had that have shaped you in, in where you're going in the future. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. When you arrived at the agency, were you immediately put on a track towards a counterterrorism role or was that something that evolved over time from other roles that you held? You know, really, I think a lot of it is spurred by your own interests and kind of where you want to go. So for me, I was always interested in, in pursuing counterterrorism work. Mm. And so I made my interest and my kind of my skills align with understanding more about that field so that I could continue pursuing it throughout my career. And on that point about secrecy, are you allowed to tell anybody that you work for the CIA? How does that work? Can you tell your parents? Well, I think when you're, um, you know, if you're working in the clandestine side of the CIA, it's, it's really a burden that you and everyone else who might know, as in your parents or your loved ones, have to carry maintaining that Um, that secrecy, not just for yourself, but for the work that you're doing. And so coming out of it, it's a little different because now suddenly there is a recognition and your resume reads exactly where you worked, which is very, it's very awkward to kind of get into that world coming out of it when for so long, when you're on the inside, you're not able to talk about it. Do you just tell your friends and your family that you're doing some other sort of bureaucratic role or how do you manage that in your life? I tried not to tell anybody anything. <laughs> I was just at work. I mean, obviously, my parents knew um, because especially with deployments, you know, I think it was important for your loved ones to understand where you are. Um, but again, it's just there's so little that you can actually talk about. It must be really difficult to manage that personally as well, because, I mean, it's a lot of stress. It's a high stress job and not being able to rely on your sort of close core group of family and friends for for support. That must be difficult at times. In a way, your agency family becomes your family, right? So because you can share things with your colleagues, you know, your close teammates that you can't share outside the building. So in a way, you know, the agency becomes your family. Mm. And so if we look a little bit more at your sort of career in counterterrorism, you touched on deploying overseas there. Could you give us a little bit of an idea about what some of the stuff you did in that role was and, you know, where it took you, how often you were overseas, things like that? So um, I would say, you know, for a number of years of my life, I was focused on the counterterrorism target worldwide, but especially in the Pakistan-Afghanistan region. You know, obviously, post 9-11, pursuit of bin Laden and other al-Qaeda leaders was central in the Pakistan-Afghanistan region. So that was an area that I focused on a lot. Over many years of covering that region, I also had the, you know, the opportunity to deploy there a number of times. 
and that was probably hands down the best experience of my career is is being in Afghanistan and and all the various things that we do, not just the agency, but the U.S. military, our partners, coalition forces. I mean, it's just it was hands down the best part of my career. Hmm. How often were you out there? Like, was it was it all year round or? You can't say. You're not allowed to say. <laughs> okay. Gita's shaking her head as I asked that question. <laughs> when you were in Afghanistan, if you believe the movies, when CIA case officers deploy into the field, they often have a call sign or a secret code name. Did you have something like that? Uh, I did. My call sign um, was Blackbird. And it was, yeah, yeah, it was just the name that we referred to and, you know, yeah, it also sounds cool. Did you get to choose it? I didn't, actually. It was assigned to me. So typically, call signs have to be assigned to you. So this one was also assigned to me. What happens if you get a bad one that you don't <laughs> like? Are you allowed to change? I guess you're stuck with it. <laughs> yeah, you're stuck with it. We had a couple funny ones, but yeah, mine was mine was Blackbird. And that's actually how our Afghan partners who work with us still refer to me. Yeah, I bet. When when you were um, in country in Afghanistan, what, if any, detail are you able to give about the sort of work that you were doing, just in terms of even who you were working with and, and in the abstract? Yeah, I mean, being in Afghanistan, much like in any other country, you do work with the host country government, the partners that you build on the ground there. We had many different partners uh, within the Afghan security forces, and some in particular that we worked with more closely, especially where it came to counterterrorism work. The day-to-day, I mean, it was a high-stress environment. You're dealing with issues that could touch on life and death. But overall, I mean, you're, you're kind of very focused on what you're doing, working seven days a week often. And then you, in my case, the decompression came when I was back on a plane heading home. But for the time on the ground, you know, you're just, you're, you're constantly working. So clearly, Afghanistan was probably the most dangerous place in the world to go at the time that you were there. What were some of the most frightening moments that you experienced whilst you were deployed? Um, I would say learning that colleagues and friends had been killed in action, American and Afghan, were some of the most difficult times, whether I was on the ground or back in, you know, back in Langley. But those are very difficult times. Um, it must be one of the main reasons which has driven you to do what you're doing today. You know, what you experienced there, losing people that were so close to you. Yeah, it certainly had a big influence because, you know, losing colleagues and, and again, American and Afghan, there's obviously a, a grief associated with that. And then for the right reasons, there's also this feeling of being inspired by who they were or by experiences that you shared to continue pushing forward. And what I'm doing right now with Afghan partners here in the U.S. was very much influenced by one such friend of mine who unfortunately we lost. Are you able to give any detail of that story? No, but it was a person in particular that sticks out in your mind. Yeah, well, that's probably a good segue to talk about FAMIL. So I'll let you describe what you're doing. I think it's wonderful. Why don't you tell us from the perspective of the decision to leave the agency and to begin your new venture? What prompted that and where you're at with it now? Absolutely. So, you know, leaving the agency was not an easy thing. And there are times where I miss it very much. When the U.S. withdrawal started and when the Taliban offensive started in Afghanistan, 
And those events really prompted Famil. We, you know, Famil launched on August 19th, which was right in the early days of the evacuation. And the intent there was to be a lifeline for Afghan partners who had done so much for our country for so many years. And through no fault of their own, they were now part of this massive evacuation in which they were really losing much of what they had worked so hard to build for so long. Mm. Were you there during the withdrawal or had you come back? Oh, I was here. You were here, right. We see reports in the press about Afghan partners not being able to get out, who, who got left behind. And also, I think about 60,000 Afghans, from what I've read, have, have managed to be relocated into the United States. How do we think about who got out and who didn't? How many, you know, it, 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 the percentage of, it's going to be very difficult to come up with a number, but is there a large group of people that are still stranded in Afghanistan? Right, there are. I mean, I believe that there are a large number that are still left behind who were eligible for the U.S. Special Immigration Visa Program, also known as the SIV program. Although FAMIL is not involved in any efforts currently in Afghanistan, um, the situation facing those that were left behind is relevant in some ways to what we're doing because our clients here in the United States are, are dealing with those family members and friends and colleagues who were left behind. And for those Afghan partners who did make it to the United States, can you describe some of the challenges that awaited them once they got here and some of the, the work that your organization does in the U.S. for Afghans that have moved? Sure. So really, I mean, from the first day that we saw Afghans arriving in the United States, uh, you know, at Dulles Airport and then at the U.S. safe havens, Famil was there. We were trying to engage with our partners to let them know that they still had a lifeline and that everything that had happened so quickly, a lot of them had a hard time even understanding what had just happened. You've lost your home. You lost your identity. You're no longer wearing a uniform that you wore for 20 years. And all of this happened so quickly. So we were there from day one to be that lifeline and to show these partners that it was not all for nothing and we're here for you and we will be here through your journey and we'll help you integrate. What do you feel like the set of challenges looks like versus when you started? Right. I mean, the challenges have obviously evolved. I think, you know, the first few weeks and months, there was this absolute shock in a lot of our Afghan partners and their families um, who didn't fully even grasp that, like, you know, imagine I've born and raised in the United States. If overnight I'm evacuated and then there's this idea that you may never see your homeland again, it's it's devastating. At the same time, they were very fortunate for having the opportunity to bring their family to safety and to allow their kids to be in an environment where they could grow up and have a, a successful future, as opposed to look what we're seeing right now in Afghanistan, especially for, for girls and women not being able to study. So there was this, this, on one side, feeling of loss, and then on the other side, a feeling of hope. And what Famil wanted to do from day one was keep inspiring that feeling of hope. Do you feel, it's probably hard to generalize, but do you feel that on the whole, the, the cohort of people that have come are starting to sort of integrate and to, to find their feet in America? They're absolutely starting, but a lot more needs to be done. 
especially for Afghans who we consider combat veterans, just like just like our U.S. military veterans who sacrificed so much, you know, whether it was life, limb or anything else, any other number of sacrifices. We also see that with the Afghan veteran community, especially those that were in combat day after day, 365 days a year, year after year. They didn't have the ability to... That's a good point. They never ripped out, right? Right. I mean, they're there the whole time. Right, right. So someone like me could be there for a period of time and then come home and decompress. This is happening in your own backyard. There's no decompression. Totally, yeah. Right. So the decompression that happened, you know, once they were evacuated, we're now dealing with helping those that were wounded, either who lost limbs um, or who were severely shot or injured. We're helping them cope with that physical and medical injury, medical need rather, and then also helping those who are still coping with issues like PTSD. Yeah. Do Afghan veterans that are now living in the United States, do they get access to the VA sort of benefits in the same way as a U.S. military veteran does? No, they don't. So you guys have to fund all of the medical care that you're providing to? Absolutely. Absolutely. For those that have Medicaid, the coverage varies so much state to state that there's no guarantee that, for example, an individual who lost a limb in one state might get coverage for a prosthetic device whereas in another state, it's zero. So we have to find ways to to fundraise, to take care of those needs. And really, the idea here is to help people ultimately become self-sufficient. Right. It's a pretty good sales pitch, if you ask me, right? Because the, the sort of people that we're helping here have shown themselves over long periods of time to be the sort of people that can stand on their own two feet. Absolutely. That are resourceful and strong, right? Um, so the idea of this, uh, that this is a handout is pretty, you know, pretty obviously wrong. I mean, I'll tell you, Jack, uh, you know, just one client in particular, he lost both of his legs in an explosion one year before the withdrawal. And he, to this day, he doesn't have prosthetic devices to help him walk. So he's kind of bound to a wheelchair. Every conversation that I've had with him personally and that my team has, he says to us, if you can help me get legs, it will help me go back to work so I can take care of my family. So these are hardworking people who don't want to depend on benefits and stipends to survive. They want to get back on their feet. Yeah, There's a sense of pride in providing for their families, and that's something that they want to do. But I tell you what one of the big concerns is. The immigration system is so backlogged right now that Afghans who arrived here under the Special Immigrant Visa Program who normally would have processed and received a green card by now are significantly behind. Without having a green card, they can't purchase property. They can't take certain jobs. They can't apply and join the U.S. Armed Forces, even though that's where their strongest skills are. Isn't that ridiculous? Right. Among the the group of Afghan veterans that have uh, relocated here to to the United States. What sort of jobs, you know, are they finding success in securing work in, and, and what do you think their skill set lends itself most naturally to in terms of working in America? So their skill set lends itself best to the security field. A lot of these Afghan veterans have the same skill sets that we would see in the the U.S. Special Operations community, and so that skill set obviously lends itself well to jobs and. Security, law enforcement, military, those type of fields. 
However, they also have skills that are very transferable to other trades. Oftentimes, if you are on the battlefield, you are also a combat medic who can now pursue a career in the medical field here um, with appropriate training. By, by and large, a lot of the Afghans that we work with do have special security skills. And that is something that we're looking at introducing to the U.S. public and private sector in a more yeah. um, formalized way. I can imagine both, but particularly the private sector. I mean, I can imagine there being very strong demand in, you know, for people's security details and things like this for for combat veterans of this caliber, right? Absolutely. Like they're not easy to find. No, not easy to find. And really it's it's kind of a two for one, right? On one side, you have these skill sets that some of these folks have for years, men and women. Um, and then on the other hand, you also have this way to help the newest generation of immigrants to the United States land on their feet and apply their unique skills and their diverse experiences. All while ensuring the security of high-profile Americans. Absolutely. It seems like everyone wins there, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's something that we're looking to do very soon is to introduce um, an entity that's able to employ them on a larger scale with U.S. public and private sector. Yeah, fascinating. Mm -hmm. Could you just give us a couple of Famil's biggest achievements, biggest success stories so far? So I would say hands down, the Wounded Heroes program has been one of our biggest successes. We launched this program right around May of 2022, so less than a year ago. Um, And the idea here was we have a number of combat wounded Afghans who need urgent medical care for physical injuries, but also who need certain medical mental health resources to address invisible scars, such as PTSD. Yeah. That can be said, that could be true for almost all of the Afghans that arrived in the United States. They did go through a lot of trauma during the evacuation prior to it and continue experiencing trauma because of being separated from from their families. Mm. But in particular for a veteran community, having trauma care that's informed of, you know, of of that type of work or that type of environment, I think was very important. So launching this program last year, uh, which was a huge priority for us from the beginning, has been met with a lot of excitement and success. And it's helped our our Afghan partners who are part of that program heal in so many ways. Yeah. What's the buy-in like that you get from, say, former people that worked in Afghanistan with you or politicians on Capitol Hill or anyone else? Um, Do you feel that there's support for what you're doing here in the States? There is support for what we're doing. I would say more support is encouraged and needed. But yes, there is support for what we're doing. People do care about these issues. We are finding ordinary Americans and very successful, extraordinary Americans coming forward. And for us, it's all, you know, it's it's all exciting that we're getting that kind of support. But more is needed. More, yeah. More is needed. And if we look at the actual withdrawal from Afghanistan itself, but from the lens of supporting our Afghan partners, does not getting this right, does not resettling our Afghan partners effectively create a risk to the United States and to the world going forward? Because it's going to be harder to partner with another country at some point in the future when some other geopolitical issue arises. Um, you know, is that, a, is that a valid observation? I would say... I believe it's very important to fulfill our commitments. 
So we have a commitment and we have a moral obligation to ensure that those individuals who supported our country, because we asked them to, they, they raised their hand when we went in and said, we need help. Yeah. And for 20 years, they continued raising their hand mm. and being part of this mission. I believe we have a moral obligation to ensure that we help them land on their feet. And to do that right can only breed more success for generations to come as our country looks to other foreign partners. Yeah. So there's a moral and a practical imperative here, right? Which it seems fairly obvious. And that's why I'm a little bit surprised that there isn't, doesn't seem to be that much over political will to support, um, you know, the resettlement of some of our Afghan partners. I'm surprised by that because it seems short-sighted from some politicians in Washington. Sure. And I think one of the challenges is the system is just overwhelmed. We touched on immigration earlier. And I think, you know, until we can address an overwhelmed immigration system, how do you correct that so that more Afghans can be resettled, receive their green cards and feel a sense of belonging. That's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought of that. So like because of the broader issues with immigration policy in the United States and the southern border and everything that's going on there, it, I, I guess I just intuitively thought that the Afghan veterans were on a different track, but they're sort of like getting caught up. I thought so too, Jack. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think it would, they'd be getting lumped in with me when I go to get my green card, you know? Well, look, in the past, the special immigrant visa program was very different than from August 2021 forward, right? So in the past, the the system could handle the numbers. Um, When individuals received their special immigrant visa, when they arrived here, they almost immediately received a U.S. green card. Um, Those individuals went through extensive vetting before getting the, the special immigrant visa. August 2021 forward, you now have that same class of individuals who are going through a overburdened immigration system in much larger numbers. Plus, you have humanitarian parolees that are applying for asylum. So it's just a, it's just an absolute traffic jam. But on that note, I will say, um, I think there is something to be said for taking care of Afghans who served on behalf of our government. And I would love to see more movement being made to help that process. It's a really important um issue. And it, it just for whatever reason, maybe it's because of all the political upheaval in the United States recently, but it feels like the Afghan withdrawal fell out of the headlines more quickly than I would have thought. And this story is, you know, very central to that. And so moving now, if, if we look at the actual withdrawal from a high level, the operation of the war, what, do, what were your observations of what the terrorist threat to the rest of the world out of Afghanistan looked like, say, in the year 2000, just in the abstract. I'm trying to compare Afghanistan now to Afghanistan then as a breeding ground for global terror. Jack, the reality is the Taliban has already violated the Doha Agreement as seen in August of 2022 when Ayman Zawahiri was targeted in Kabul in the epicenter of the current Afghan government where they operate and allegedly in the home of the current Minister of Interior of the of the Afghan the current Afghan government. So the idea that, you know, comparing pre-9-11 to where we are now, I think there is a concern. And we see this through the Afghans that are here in the US that receive regular news from back home. What is happening on the ground there? 
And I think that there is a concern, I believe, that the current government is creating a safe haven for groups like al-Qaeda and others, much like we saw pre-9-11. Given the manner of the withdrawal and the rapid time frame in which the Taliban have taken over power again, I wonder if the red lines for the Western world to actually try and intercede in Afghanistan, or indeed elsewhere in the Middle East, maybe that much further out now. Um, and, and the reason I ask that is I, I wonder what that means for groups like women in Afghanistan. It's hard to envisage what the Taliban could do now, short of using a weapon of mass destruction that would that would bring the West back there. I mean, do you think that is that a problem? Like, a- So I think from my optic, there's really um, three main issues that are concerning to me um, on the ground. And this is, again, based on the reflections that we get through the population we work with. Um, one issue is a humanitarian crisis, right? So you have mm. thousands, thousands of Afghans without access to food, appropriate shelter, and even the ability to pursue employment, mm. get an income to be able to, to get those resources for themselves. So that's one concern, you know, this humanitarian crisis. I think the second concern that I believe is the gross human rights violations that are happening. And, you know, the current Afghan government has been able to keep a lot of that off the media. But the reality is, and we saw it in the news very recently, former Afghan government officials being targeted and killed. To the last couple of days, I think one of the, the female member of the former parliament who didn't leave was murdered, right? Correct. And also former Afghan security forces mm. who are facing that same fate. Yeah. We've, we've obviously seen the women and girls who no longer have access to schools and education. Let's talk about women and girls that are being forced into marriages or men that are being punished for what is perceived to be a a woman committing a crime um, or other corporal punishments, um, individuals who are, um, you know, forcibly losing their, their limbs as punishment for what the Taliban believes is, again, is a crime, right? So there's all these human rights violations that are taking place. Yeah. That was the second. And the third concern, again, goes back to, you know, is Afghanistan once again um, becoming a safe haven for groups like al-Qaeda and their affiliates, the Taliban, the Haqqani Network, and others, to, to reform, to strengthen, to look at external threats, all those things. So really, I mean, I think for for anybody from the outside looking in, those are three serious issues that need to be that need to be looked at very closely. Yeah, and I just think it's a massive problem for the world now. Particularly the third point around, you know, it's a, it, the place is probably it has to be a petri dish for global extremism now, doesn't it? Given the the stated aims of the government that's in control now, right? Like, I mean, it's just it's just a structural risk now, right? Um, and 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 one that's just going to be very very difficult to to deal with going forward. Absolutely, I think it could have been dealt with before the evacuation. Mm. Um. I believe that we could have looked at other options, like a smaller presence of U.S. troops um, that would have given Afghan security forces the resources, the advisory role, the assistance that they needed Mm -hmm. to actually push back on that Taliban offensive. Yeah. And of course, I mean, we can we can 
you know, hindsight is 2020. We can talk about this all day, but what happens moving forward? What was your perspective on the manner in which the withdrawal was executed? I mean, it seemed to surprise everyone. And from what I can tell, even Afghan commanders on the ground were surprised by this. Like, what can you say about how quickly this happened and how well it was telegraphed to Afghan forces on the ground? My understanding is everything happened very quickly, right? And we saw the chaos during the withdrawal. Um, We saw the violence right outside of the airport. When you have hundreds of thousands of people fighting their way into the airport to try to save their lives and get on a flight, you also had American diplomats. You had U.S. citizens. You had foreign diplomats, all who needed to get to safety. What I want to recognize here is, once again, our Afghan partners played a very important role from the first day, post 9-11, to the last day of U.S. boots on the ground, our Afghan partners provided a security blanket at the airport, you know, as much as uh, they could in every circumstance. Our Afghan partners really put themselves out to prevent further loss of life at the airport, um, especially after that, that incident took place. Why do you think it happened so quickly? can't figure out what the motivation to do this withdrawal in a manner that wasn't immediately obvious to our partners was. I mean, is there any strategic value in in that? I wish I knew. I really wish I knew. Do you feel that some of the good work and the achievements that you had working out in Afghanistan have been squandered by the rapid withdrawal and the manner in which it was executed? We hear a lot. What was it all for? I mean, we lost so much in terms of blood, sweat and tears Um, American lives, obviously, in the thousands, Afghan lives, I believe, 26 times that. Um, But I think, you know, for me personally, rather than look at what was it all for, I try to remind myself it was all for the right reasons. And what we're dealing with now is temporary. I hope that for all the right reasons, there will be um, security in Afghanistan I hope that the Afghans who remain there find a way to live securely and pursue all those things that we value as Americans, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's very hard to see Afghan women attaining those goals, though, isn't it? The way things are right now, yes, absolutely. Because, you know, one thing that stands out to me is that the Taliban seem to have gotten a little bit more savvy in the way they're presenting themselves to the world. They seem to be creating all these new ministries within the government, which have these names that sound like they're there to advance the interests of Afghan women. And then when you look at the actual legislative, it's not even legislation, the the edicts that are given out by those ministries, with no exception, all they do is hobble and veto the rights of women unilaterally across the country. You said that it might be temporary. Do you think that's going to get any better? Look, I think aside from this being, again, a gross human rights violation, stopping women and girls from pursuing an education, I think the Taliban has also cleverly used this as a bargaining chip because by doing what they did, which is very offensive to so many people and so many governments, they've now opened this conversation of, well, if we were to open girls' schools, what would that look like? Gives them bargaining chips. Exactly. And so I think this is actually a, you know, on one side, a gross human rights violation, and on the other side, a political maneuver by the Taliban. Mm, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of, thought of that, but that makes sense. In your conversations with Afghan 
people here in the US who still have families um, back in Afghanistan. Are there any possibilities for people to bring family members that are still here to the US now? Or is it just whoever got here, got here and that's kind of it? So I understand recently there has been a new process that has been established for Afghans to be reunited with family, immediate family members who were left behind. So that would, that would include spouse and children who now through a reunification process can apply and seek that type of, um, that type of reunification to happen. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Cause I mean, that, that, that also felt like one of the really dire humanitarian aspects of what occurred was that in some cases, whole families were separate, you know, weren't able to come together. Well, in, in some cases that will continue, right? So like for adults who have elder parents, they may never see those elder parents again face to face. And in that part of the world as well, the family unit often stays a lot more tightly knitted together, right? Like, I mean, you live together in the same home, the adults look after the parents, etc. So imagine that loss of not being able to see your parents ever again. Can't. It's horrific. Not because of a choice that you had or a vote that you had in the matter, but the decision was made for you. To have to confront that after 20 years of fighting, um, I, I, it's very difficult to comprehend. Sure. And so that, of course, that makes what Famil is doing that much more important because we're dealing with all these issues on a day-to-day basis. Um, a parent who um, died of old age but didn't get to see their child here in the U.S. one last time how that child is then coping, adult child is now coping with that, um, There is these issues pop up on a day-to-day basis. The good thing is Afghan partners, especially those who worked at the U.S. government, they are extremely hardworking, they are loyal, and they are committed to surviving. They want to get on their feet and be independent and be self-sufficient. They simply need a lifeline that Famiel provides to understand that path. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good uh, a good note to sort of wrap up on. But th- I think the work that you're doing is is so important, Gita. And also, you clearly are having a real impact. But there's a lot of work still to go. So please keep it up. And uh, I hope that we'll have the opportunity to sit down again and uh, talk again sometime. I hope so too, Jack. Thank you for your time and for helping bring this issue to more people. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Gita. I'm Jack Wright, an Australian journalist based in New York City. I'm a contributor to the Washington Post and the Australian Financial Review and a former executive director of JP Morgan Chase. This has been episode two of a new series on the intersection focusing on Afghanistan. Stay tuned for episode three coming in mid-February. And until then, thanks very much for listening. <laughs>